Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello. Before we get started today, just a quick warning. This episode does contain strong language, which might cause offence. A long, long time ago, back in the days of low-rise jeans and first-generation Nokia mobiles, one gossip blogger instilled fear into the hearts of celebrities. I viewed what I was doing like an online soap opera, where you have your heroes and you have your villains. Perez Hilton was one of the villains. In the early 2000s, he ran one of the most influential and brutal gossip blogs ever, in which he'd regularly savage celebrities like Britney Spears and Lindsay Lohan. He would write things like slut or fat or like to doodle penises around women who he was implying were sexually loose in some way. Perez Hilton has been accused of inventing cyberbullying, but how complicit were the rest of us? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, Perez Hilton, the gossip blogger who changed celebrity culture forever. It was his blog that first made Perez Hilton famous. And whilst it still exists screaming celebrity headlines in a lurid shade of hot pink. As fashions changed, so did Perez Hilton. He's now amassed a huge new following on social media platforms like Twitter and TikTok. Or rather, he had, until last December, when TikTok permanently banned his account. I am feeling numb, and I don't want to seem overly dramatic. But I feel like my world is crumbling. This feels like a death to me. That's from a clip Perez Hilton posted to his YouTube channel in the aftermath. The ban came after he declared war on some of the platform's biggest stars, often just teenagers. Tea time! And yes, we're talking Charlie D'Amelio. As some of you know, Charlie posted a video of herself dancing to that song, I can't take Big D, but I'll suck on it. I just found out that Charlie's father was arrested for drunk driving just a few years ago. I just got a question. Who is this pretzel Hilton dude? After the ban, Perez Hilton, now aged 42 with his TikTok career in tatters, recorded a long and rambling YouTube video asking the teenage influencers he'd insulted for help. I have reached out to Charlie D'Amelio and her family. I messaged them on Instagram, begging them 
for help. With all of the humility in the world, I grovel to them and I pray that they could find kindness in their heart to please help me. My name's Sarah Dyson. I'm a freelance writer and I was very fortunate to be invited to write a profile of Perez Hilton for the Sunday Times recently. This was months after the TikTok drama had unfolded and Perez Hilton appeared to have picked himself up after the great unravelling. His real name is Mario Lavandera, which is oh, which is sort of quite fun. When we did the interview, he came into the Zoom and that was his name initially. And I was like, oh, who's that? <laughs> who could it be? I was like, oh, no, that's his real name, isn't it? That's who he is. And then the name changed and he was in character. He was on. Perez Hilton appeared to be amiable and almost humbled after his TikTok experience. He also claimed to be a fan of British telly. You know, Coronation Street or um, what are some of the other ones in the UK? <laughs> I don't even. Oh, yeah, East Enders. East Enders. Very great knowledge. I'm impressed. Yes. I'm a huge Anglophile. I am. I, I, I'm sincere. Yeah. While Sarah had followed Perez Hilton's meteoric rise through the noughties, she'd been less aware of his recent fall. So I found out in my usual terrible lazy way that I research these things which is that I pin down my 15 year old daughter and I demand that she tells me what she knows about whatever I'm writing about. (laughs) Tell me what the young people think. I hope you're paying her for research. (laughs) Absolutely not, no. So I was assigned to write this profile so my first step was to barge into her bedroom and say what do you think about Perez Hilton? Expecting her to be like I have never heard of him, what is this old people nonsense that you're trying to get me interested in again? And instead she said I know him, he got kicked off TikTok. I mean, there is a profound irony there, isn't there? This is a man who's basically created the celebrity culture, social media's use of celebrity culture that TikTok now thrives on. You know, this is the stuff that he invented a couple of decades ago. And now he's being booted off it. Right. I think there is definitely some irony in that. There's an interesting question how much he actually created the culture. I think one of the things that came up in the interview is he really feels that he was an innovator in terms of the way people kind of conduct themselves online and the way that online culture happens. My entire career is thanks to non-traditional media. I was the original influencer before that word influencer existed. I was not just part of the culture, I helped to create culture. But at the same time, he is kind of pushing back against this idea that he was the first person to be unkind on the internet. I get all the negative credit, you know, Mila Kunis, the actress and the wife of Ashton Kutcher, claimed that I invented trolling and that because of me, everything changed for celebrities. (laughs) (laughs) He was definitely not the first person to be being unpleasant online when he started blogging in 2004. But he made it his business, he made it his identity and he made it his life. And so... You know, even if it's not fair, it is also something that he opted into. 
And did he, in some way at least, shape the tone of, of celebrity culture? You know, the, the, the slight viciousness, the rather than looking up to celebrities, this constantly trying to tear them down that we sort of started seeing magazines and newspapers replicating. I think it's an interesting question, sort of which way the influence went. I'm working on a book at the moment called Upskirt Decade, Women, Fame and the Noughties, which covers a lot of this period. And over the last week, I was doing a lot of reading about the Mirror's 3AM girls. So the 3AM girls invented in the year 2000. And the idea is at the time, most gossip columnists are basically men who work from a desk or go out to celebrity events. The idea with the 3AM girls is that they are hot young women who party as hard as the celebrities, stay out late, collect all the dirt. And when they were originally put together, the brief they were given by Piers Morgan, who's the editor of The Mirror at the time, was to make the celebrities afraid of what the gossip columnists could do. The same year, I think, Heat magazine reinvented itself as a celebrity magazine. But it wasn't just the magazines and tabloids who were out to shame celebrities. The socialite and heiress Paris Hilton, the inspiration for Perez Hilton's online name, was one of a new brand of celebrities who made a career out of being famous for being famous. But when, in 2003, a sex tape of her emerged, instantly turning her fame into infamy, even the serious press had a field day. The New York Times article that was published about one night in Paris, and it's really nasty. It's incredibly slut-shamey. It's incredibly victim-blaming. It basically says she's dumb. This sex tape is the best thing that could ever happen to her because at least it makes her interesting and implies that she is, you know, kind of so fame-hungry that either she's made this happen or if she hasn't made it happen then she deserves it because she's so fame hungry so you know the most august vehicle for journalism in america is writing things like that so these things do predate perez hilton coming onto the blogging scene this culture of scrutiny this culture of unkindness was in place before he started blogging the technology to self-publish basically starts to really come together sort of around 2003, 2004. And that's when you get Hilton starts blogging, the website Gawker comes into being. And because it's online, it's not bound by the same kind of power structures that print media is locked into. The bloggers come on the scene and that stuff kind of goes out the window. They are not subject to the same sort of restraints. And because um, Hilton's operating out of America, he also has First Amendment protections, which really gives a great deal of freedom to say stuff that if you were publishing in Britain, would be very, very difficult to get away with without having a massive libel suit land on you. Because Perez Hilton has this license with which to operate, he is able to kind of take on this persona of very nihilistic, very aggressive, very, very misogynistic often, and extremely scurrilous. And people loved it. I mean, just for people who weren't checking his blog at the time, what did it look like? What sort of stories was he publishing and and who was he interested in? 
So the big people he wrote about at the time, Britney Spears gets lots of attention. Lindsay Lohan is also a very regular subject. It's, you know, essentially like anyone who was a big name in tabloid um, celebrity reporting would get coverage on his blog. Anybody who was that kind of magic combination of well-known and trouble-prone was really the perfect subject for him to write about. In terms of how it looks and how it's presented, kind of shockingly amateurish. You know, all of my editorial values are offended. The copy is just a sort of a riot of exclamation points and question marks, capitals, bolding all over the place. Really short, snappy paragraphs, you know, like one sentence. Extremely hyperbolic tone all of the time. And his real trademark was the pictures. But he would basically grab photos from wherever he could grab them and then add his own doodles and annotations to them, literally just scrawling on them in MS Paint. Talk us through some of the hits. What, what was he saying about people? Oh, I mean, I don't know how, how graphic you're happy for me to be on the podcast because one of the interesting parts of the editorial process in terms of writing about that time in the profile is my editor saying, can you give some examples? And I would put some examples in and they would say, oh, <laughs> like, we can't publish this in the Sunday Times. It's disgusting. <laughs> I was like, mm, yes, it is horrible, isn't it? Oh, God. Give us, give us your highlights and we'll bleep as appropriate. OK, there's a story he wrote, which is just reporting that Britney Spears has been staying at a particular hotel in Los Angeles. And he writes a little news in brief thing about it and then says, and I bet she's letting every concierge and bellboy do her up the butt. I was like, what? <laughs> like, Where did that come from? This is an astonishing thing to say about, you know, some young woman just because she's staying in a hotel. And I think the thing that is hard to reconstruct is that at the time, it just flew. There was this generally quite cruel kind of rough and tumble approach to celebrity as a game. And this stuff was kind of all all in it. It's a thing you know is bad, but you sort of enjoy with a little thrill and consider harmless at the end of it. But it was, you know, seen in that light as, you know, the equivalent of scarfing a bar of Cadbury's, have a read of Paris Hilton. I mean, we sort of get a sense there of, of how he brought you know, a certain viciousness and aggressiveness, a, a slight sense of bullying to celebrity culture. He was also sort of broke new ground just by being incredibly fast. I mean, tell us about one of his big breaks, which was the Brad and Angelina affair. Yeah, Brangelina. It was actually really fun to hear him talk about this because he, like, he just properly came alive describing it. I broke that story and I'll tell you how. And it's and it's an example of one of my one of my favorite days, a, what, a type of days. Meaning, I view what I do like a surfer. Yeah. Some days you're gonna have big waves. Some days you'll have small waves. So, one of my favorite types of days are when a story breaks, and then another development, and then another development, and then another development, and and it's like yeah. all these multiple posts about the same thing in one day. It's like a tsunami. I love it. And clearly is still kind of thrilled by the whole process of getting a scoop and breaking it. And, you know, as a journalist, I, I relate to that. I relate hard, actually, just the pleasure of finding something out and getting it out there, no matter what it is. And how did that come about for him? It's an interesting story, actually, that says quite a lot about the politics of the media. 
at the time, Brad and Angelina, they made Mr. and Mrs. Smith together. Then Brad breaks up with Jennifer Aniston. So, you know, they've been this kind of golden couple of American celebrity. Suddenly they fall apart. Everyone is a bit like, hmm, <laughs> has Angelina Jolie got something to do with this? We wonder if he could have hooked up with the enormously hot woman who he's just been in a film with. But there's no public evidence coming out about whether they're in a relationship or not. Then paparazzi score the golden ticket. They get the pictures of Brad and Angelina holidaying together. Back in 2005, the paparazzi, they used to email all of the buyers the photos and then have them bid on them. And they would send over the full photos. It wasn't, oh, low res. Uh, it wasn't which even is water. Like, which is inc- horrifying and incredible to me now. But, you know, was That's how it used to be. It, they weren't even watermarked or anything. So these photos are sent out. There's a bidding war between magazines over who gets to publish them. And his account is that he is then contacted by a magazine that's been outbid. And they say, we can't afford to run these pictures. We've got these pictures. We've got the full res unwatermarked pictures because they've been emailed to everybody. Our rivals are going to publish them. Do you want them? So essentially, it's a spoiling tactic from the magazine that's been outbid. It's a way for them to spike their rival scoop. If you think about your magazine, you're, for example, a weekly supermarket tabloid style magazine. You know, you want your one big splash that's going to be really really catch people's attention and get them to pick up your magazine. And then it turns out that your splash has actually been distributed to every computer with an internet connection already. Everyone's seen it. Nobody cares. However many millions of dollars you've paid, these pictures are now effectively worthless. So he broke that story. It became no longer in anyone's interest to kind of try and sit on an exclusive. If you've got an exclusive, you need to put it out as soon as possible or somebody else is going to beat you to it. Doing it really did transform the way those kind of scoops are put out. Coming up, the man behind the blog. But first... I'm Mariella Frostrup, and every day on my show on Times Radio, we speak to some of the biggest names in the world of the arts, culture, and politics. We bring you discussions about new social trends and all the latest news, views, and interviews. We can only do this thanks to the subscribers of The Times and Sunday Times. Subscribe today by visiting thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. 
Sarah, in America, Perez Hilton is pretty much a household name. For people here, they may not be as aware of him as a character. So take us back to pre-celebrity. What do we actually know about Perez Hilton, the man? So he grows up in Miami. He's the child of Cuban immigrants. It becomes rapidly apparent that he is not going to be the kind of macho young man that his parents, who are coming out of this fairly traditional Latino culture, would like him to be. He loves Gloria Restefan. He likes to dance and play piano. And his parents kind of push back against this. They send him to judo lessons in the hope that it will toughen him up. When he's caught fooling around with another boy, they arrange for him to have therapy. So yeah, like this is a pretty difficult, tough situation to grow up in. And then he has a couple of really intense traumas when he's 15. His father dies very suddenly. And then very shortly after that, his maternal grandfather, who he was also close to, dies as well. So he goes through these two very significant um, bereavements in very short order. That traumatic loss helped to birth Perez Hilton because my therapy, my healing was drowning myself in pop culture, in television, in magazines, in music, and escaping my reality that way. And that really helped form the essence of who I am. He kind of treats it as a sort of supervillain origin story, basically, that he went through these incredible losses and it gave him the impetus to reinvent himself. You know, a lot of people know the persona. They've read his writing. What did you think actually talking to him as a person? What were your impressions? I don't know whether I met the person. He is, he was very... <laughs> That's so interesting. He's <laughs> always the character, always on. Yeah, extremely on. You know, like from the first time he popped on screen, I guess he's a strange person to get a handle on. Well, in a way, it's kind of embarrassing. He's just like, oh, I've thought about you more than you have. <laughs> <laughs> Could he explain his, his motives in setting up the blog and also in the tone that he took towards celebrity? So the way he describes it is twofold. First of all, I viewed what I was doing like an online soap opera. Mm-hmm. You have your heroes and you have your villains. He saw himself as a character. He saw famous people as characters and none of it was serious. But at the same time, there's a second impulse that he talks about. In some naive, foolish, deluded way, you know, I always viewed what I was doing in the past through that lens. Like, oh, I'm just calling out the celebrities that need to be called out. I'm shining a light on those that get it right and those that get it wrong. I mean, it is so contradictory. I mean, he wants to bring down celebrity culture, but be a part of it. How does he explain those contradictions? He doesn't really. I think he is, he's aware of them, but I don't think he has a kind of a grand explanation of Paris Hilton, except in as much as he was character and he would describe it as him kind of being swallowed up by the persona that he invented. But yeah, his relationship to fame is is so strange and contradictory because like you say, he was 
you know, he was completely committed to tearing people down and to exposing the kind of grimy underbelly of celebrity. But at the same time, when someone like um, Lady Gaga came along, so she she kind of launches her career 2007, 2008, and she courts him explicitly. Like Paris Hilton is a really important part of launching Lady Gaga on the world. And he loves it. He loves being courted by her. He loves feeling like he's her friend. I asked him in the interview whether he ever felt like people were using him, like the celebrities who acted as his friend. Did he feel like they were just trying to get something out of him? But his answer was, I don't know, I found it kind of genuinely touching in its naivety. I thought, wow, it's 2009, 2008. I'm so disliked, but this person likes me. They must really like me if they want to be my friend. Was it possible to have sympathy for him? Yeah, very much. Yeah, I felt I felt really sympathetic to him. It's impossible to hear somebody talk about being bullied as a child without feeling sympathy for them. It's just at the same time, you can't strike off the record the things that he did do. Does he feel any remorse for some of the things he did earlier? I think he does. I asked if there was ever a story that he regretted not running. And he said, no, he only regretted things that he had written. Looking at his blog now, he's definitely changed the way he conducts himself. So no more penises. But at the same time, he's still in the business of drama. It's just that the nature of that toxicity has kind of moved on from being like, oh, she's fat, she's slutty, to she's problematic. The business is still making content out of attacking people. He he was creating what became quite a toxic culture, but at the same time, there was clearly, you know, there was that uptick of demand. There were people sort of who were checking his blog, who were following him. There was clearly an appetite for all of that. Were we all to blame? The tendency to look back at this period and pull out individual figures like Paris Hilton and say, oh, he did it. He was the, you know, Wizard of Oz behind the curtain creating all of this cruelty. I think it's wrong because people were clicking on it. Lots of the things that have happened and lots of the ways that internet culture developed would have happened with or without him. But he is somebody who just by dint of his personality, by dint of the time and place that he was, he was perfectly placed to be the conductor for lots of these influences. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, the writer Sarah Dighton. The producers today were Asia Fuchs and Brenna Daldorf. The executive producer was Kate Ford, and sound design was by Falcon Kisseltuk. If you'd like to get in touch with any ideas for future episodes, any stories you'd like us to cover, or any thoughts on what you've just heard, then do drop us a line to storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. Thanks for listening. See you again soon. Thank you.